3: For the animal passengers, it's the end of a baffling ordeal of strange experiences, and the chief reaction seems to be, gee, it's great to be back. All engines are started. That looks really good. So we'd like it to stir up your cryo tank. Oh,
1: wow, it's going
4: up so slowly. The state of the space flyer during
3: the flight
0: is being observed with the help of radio telemetric and television devices. Station, this is Houston. Are you ready for the event?
2: Yes, I'm all set, yeah?
1: 60 years into the space age, welcome to the November edition of Space Boffins with Richard Hollingham and Sue Nelson in partnership with the naked scientists.
4: Coming up, Richard will be talking to the first man to spacewalk beyond low Earth orbit, Apollo 15 Command Module pilot Al Warden. And I'll be crunching gravel in New Mexico beneath one of the huge radio telescopes famously seen in the movie Contact. One of them is moving, and it's making a strange sound. It almost sounds like it's calling E.T.
1: Spooky. Our studio guest is TV presenter, broadcaster, turns out an actor as well, space fan, (laughs) and now published author Dallas Campbell, and his book is here. Ad Astra, An Illustrated Guide to Leaving the Planet. Uh, it's described as being a deeply impractical guide to getting off the planet, uh, and that was in the uh, book's publicity material. Well, yes, I know. <laughs> yes. I, I, that was the hardest bit, actually. Kind of, oh, it's end, really, really hard, hard, writing
2: those blurbs. It well, it's a bit like when you write your biography and you, you put in an actor people bring that up. I'm like <laughs> really sorry. It's on Wikipedia years. as well. It? Yeah, it's all well, over I was Wikipedia. Like, I used to work in a pizza restaurant. That's not that. All kinds of things I used to do. <laughs> in once, my youth. I
4: once worked in a Cadbury's factory. Did you? In a holiday. So, nice. uh, yes, I cleaned the I floors can, at a I,
1: mental hospital for a while.
4: Which is excellent preparation that for is this polite. podcast. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yep, yep. Now, there's a lot of humour in this book. And I think you better... Straight up, explain why there is a section in this book entitled Andy Warhol's Tiny Penis.
2: (laughs) I I sort of wrote it as a joke, kind of. I wasn't going to put it in, but then the publisher quite liked it. It was a documentary I watched. It was an American documentary. And it was a bit like, um, have you seen that program on the BBC with... um, um, oh God! What's the name? And, and they do the antiques hunting. And they want to see if it's a fake or a fortune. Fiona Bruce does it. Oh, Antiques Roadshow! An, well, no, no, not, not so, Antiques Roadshow. Oh, so so she does, she does she do like another an, one. She does another one. Yeah, oh, it's like okay. an art program. <laughs> anyway, this is an American one, and somebody had turned up with this little kind of small tile, like a centimeter square tile. And on it were these drawings by some famous New York artists of the nineteen sixties people like Bob Rauschenberg and andy warhol and they'd done like each one had done of these artists had done a little sketch, a little squiggle, and Andy Warhol had drawn a little willy as one might of course, why would you not draw that and the idea was they wanted to try and get it onto the moon this little tiny little tile somehow NASA had said no uh, and I wonder why <laughs> yeah. yes. but uh, allegedly what had happened the 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 engineers at, uh, at Grumman, who Manufactured the lunar lander, had snuck it in between the actual sort of foil of the descent stage of the lunar lander, and up it went. Uh, and it was that they did this sort of investigation, sort of did it happen? So that's why I put that in. So it, was did, an interesting, so it did. So did happen. Well, because
4: there is supposed to be was, some art on the moon. There is some art on the moon. Yeah. So this,
2: is, no one can categorically prove it, but there were interviews with various engineers, and apparently a lot of the engineers, I say apparently had put in little trinkets in between those foil wrappers, pictures of their children, notes, as one might. Yeah. We like to we like to do these kinds of things, like attaching records to voyages and that kind of thing. And so that was the story. So apparently there's an Andy Warhol and Robert Rauschenberg and, and the other artists whose names escape me. I'll have to look in the book now. Um, <laughs> on the moon. So that's why I put that on up there. Of course, the famous one is the fallen astronaut, which was up there, the Apollo 15, the statue of a... Of a man. The original artist had designed that sculpture to be this symbol of humans standing upright, looking out into the cosmos in this rather grand (coughs) transhumanist kind of way. But actually, Dave Scott laid this statue face down in the lunar soil and it was a a sort of memento mori, a, a memorial to all the astronauts and the the people who'd worked on the space programme up till now who had had died. So it had a completely different meaning. So yes, as well as art about the Moon, there's actually art on the Moon. Well, we'll talk more... In a yeah, few minutes, I think that about sums your, up what book. a
4: wonderful, it's this lovely miscellany that's, of information. Miscellany, that's, it's the a, word. That's, yeah. exactly that's the word miscellany. That's what I should have put on the not cover. Put that on.
1: Uh, well, you mentioned uh, Apollo 15, and uh, you'd almost think we'd planned this, but uh, the book also features a lovely QA section with the uh, featured astronaut in this podcast, the man behind one of the best and honest autobiographies by an Apollo astronaut, Al Warden, and his book was Falling to Earth. Now, Al was command module pilot pilot of Apollo 15 the first of the J class science missions he flew to the moon in July 1971 alongside commander Dave Scott and lunar module pilot Jim Irwin he spent almost 3 days alone in his spacecraft in orbit around the moon. Now, it was one of the most successful and scientifically rigorous missions of the Apollo program, and included the first spacewalk in deep space. Well, I was lucky enough to sit down with Al during his recent visit to the UK, and we're going to play you the first part of that interview. We start with the night before his flight, when he was supposed to be
3: in quarantine. Apollo 11 and 12 went in quarantine after the flight because they were worried about us bringing some bugs back, which never happened. Then on 13, we had Ken Manningley, suspected of having German measles. They took him off the flight and they put Jack Swigert in. And after that, everybody went into quarantine before the flight. There was a time when uh, a couple of us decided that we needed to run in town and see our families. And so we kind of sneaked out the back door and drove into town. And it wasn't very long, and we didn't stay long, and we didn't get anything. I don't know what anybody would have said if they'd found out. But yeah, that was uh, kind of a kind of a neat night. <laughs> I don't like to talk about that too much because somebody could get in trouble over that. <laughs> talk about the launch, things you, you said about
1: just how smooth it is. And know that you haven't got that sense when you're at the top of, of the power
3: beneath you. You don't. When you get in a spacecraft, it's pretty tiny. And you, and you kind of lose sense of the fact that there's 353 feet of rocket underneath you. We were heavy enough that when, when all the engines fired up and we were ready to go, we actually could not sense that we were moving. It was so slow. It's like driving an automatic transmission car up to a red light, stopping, and then when the light changes, you just take your foot off the brake. How fast does it, you know a car's starting to creep. Well, that's kind of the way we got off the launch pad. In fact, Launch Control Center had to tell us that we were on our way. But it was just because our weight was so close to the thrust levels that we lifted off very slowly. And as we burned out fuel, of course, then we accelerated. And at the end of the first stage burnout, we were accelerating at about four and a half times uh, acceleration due to gravity. So we were going pretty fast at the end of first stage burnout. Now, it took about two minutes and 44 seconds. And I would guess we burned out close to six million pounds of fuel by then. So you use a lot of fuel. <laughs> uh,
1: and you re- you reach orbit. What is that like when the decision is made to then go to the moon. There's one thing being in orbit. You've got all the safety of being in orbit.
3: What about What is that moment like? That's a big step. What was interesting about our flight was that we were so heavy on launch that we couldn't go into a normal orbit. So we only got as high as 90 miles. We didn't have enough fuel on board to go any higher than that. So we were kind of in the fringes of the sensible atmosphere, hitting molecules as we went around the Earth. So we only had a certain number of orbits we could make before we either have to go to the moon or come back and land. As it turned out, uh, one and a half revolutions of the Earth, we were fine. Everything was okay. And then we made that big step of, uh, say, okay, let's uh, ignite that thing and and head off to the moon. And we added about 10,000 miles an hour. uh, Well, 8,000 miles an hour, maybe. We did that over Hawaii. In fact, our recovery ship was sitting on the surface watching us when we did that. So we got up to about 25, as I recall, 25,500 miles an hour, something like that. Uh, on our way to the moon, and, and we're going to go at that point. That's kind of like you say, okay. There's no way we're going to stop this thing now, so just sit back and relax and enjoy it. <laughs> and we did.
1: And what do you do on on the way to, on the way to the moon? We, I mean, most people be familiar with the Apollo 13 movie. You got that? You did TV slots. There's a lot of, yeah, no. uh, you know, the we didn't, bits and pieces. Yeah, what do you actually do? We
3: didn't do any of that. Well, well, of course, the very first thing was we had to get the lunar module. Uh, So we docked with that, pulled it out of its bay, and then we uh, did some navigation. So I did a lot of uh, stars uh, using a sextant to navigate, and then that got compared with what the ground had, so we knew where we were. When we weren't doing that, we were in what we called the barbecue maneuver, which meant that we just rotated very slowly so that the sun would warm the outside of the spacecraft all the way around, not just on one side. If we stayed in one attitude, the temperature differential across the spacecraft would be about 600 degrees, and uh, we couldn't allow that. So we rotated very slowly and had the sun shine around the outside about once every two minutes. and So that kept our temperature pretty well under control in a way. Outside of that, we ate and slept and did all that kind of good stuff. And Dave and Jim spent a lot of time in the lunar module going over all the procedures that they would need once we got to the moon. It's sort of like training all the way to the moon so they head off in
1: the in the lander Mm
3: -hmm.
1: what is that moment like when they close the hatch and then you agree that's the that's the time to go talk me through what happens and and what goes through your mind when there you see this module descending to the
3: surface well it's sort of like two reactions to that one was Guys, you're leaving me, and you're going down, and I wish you luck. I hope everything works out okay, which I knew it would. But the other thought was, uh, gee, it's kind of nice for them to go somewhere else for a while. So I, I kind of enjoyed that part of it. Uh, I enjoyed being by myself, and I was there for three days uh, doing my thing. People think, yeah, you got to be lonely or this or that or the other thing. Uh, the, the, the truth of the matter is I had so much to do. I didn't have time to think about that. I worked about 20 hours a day doing all the stuff I had to do. We probably did a 1,000 times more scientific things in orbit than they did on the surface because we were looking at all kinds of different things and and some very high-resolution photography and some low-light-level photography and some visual observations and remotely sensing the lunar surface. Uh, It was just a very, very busy time for me, and I really didn't get much sleep. Of course, you don't need much sleep up there because you don't have gravity. Yeah, it it was a very busy time, kind of a fun time because I had that whole thing all to myself. I was not lonely. There's a difference between being alone and being lonely. And uh, yeah, I was alone, but uh, I, I can't say I was lonely. And when I was on the backside of the moon, I didn't even talk to Mission Control. I thought that was the best part of the flight. That was great fun. Why was that? Because you were, I mean, you, you, you just cherish that, that
1: uh, feeling of being alone and you could just get on with it.
3: Well, being being alone up there, I, I, it, it opened up a whole universe to me that I, uh, that I was not expecting. And I was so much in awe of looking at the star field out there that uh, that just kind of overwhelmed everything else. I could see roughly 10 million times as many stars as you can through the atmosphere. Uh, we could see about 10 million stars through the atmosphere, and I could see 10 million times as many. Uh, roughly. And what that meant was that the star star field was just a wash of light. I couldn't pick out an individual star. That was almost overwhelming. And uh, I kind of checked that out every time I could. The other thing that was so interesting and important to me was that when I came around the side of the moon and the the earth came up over the horizon, and then I always got to a window and watched the earth rise because that's pretty amazing. And that was great. That was a beautiful thing. And did it change your perception of the Earth? I've spoken to a lot of astronauts who, who've,
1: some have said that, and some have said, "Well, not really." But you speak to uh, more recent astronaut, Ron Garan, for instance. He's very into that idea that well, he's seeing earth, the
3: Earth—he's just Earth orbit.
1: Yeah, well, absolutely, uh, and, and, he's, and he's good.
3: That's a whole different perspective well, than seeing it from the moon. That's exactly right. So, what 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 does that do to you? Well, the first thing I think you think is that that Earth back there—you look at it, and you say, "Hmm, it's the only thing I can see that has color." It's really the the, the atmosphere and the and the air and the, and the rainbow of colors that you see as the sun bounces off the atmosphere is quite amazing. Uh, when we first got there, the Earth was at about mm, maybe half. By the time we were coming back home, it was pretty much a crescent. You realize that the that the that the Earth—that's pretty small object out there and you think about your place on earth and where you live like you know gulf of mexico galveston bay clear lake city kind of thing that's a little game that i played with myself up there but it's the only thing that we can see from the moon that's uh that, that is so colorful and 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 of course something we're used to you know i i mean i've seen thousands of 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 uh, drawings of the Earth in geography books, you know, and one of the things that always amazed me is that when I saw the Earth um, from out there, I, my my instant thought was, I don't know how those guys who did those geography books did it, but they got it right because <laughs> all the the forests were green, the oceans are blue, and all that. Uh, they had it right. They had it right somehow. They got it right, and I was always amazed by that. But it was, it's a, it's a magnificent thing to look back on. Whether it changes perceptions or not, I don't know. There's always this thing about why don't we get along together down here because it's a small planet and all that. And that's and, and, and that kind of conversation has been going on for 30, 40 years now. But I was always more interested in looking the other way and seeing the universe out there. And, and if you study what we know about the known universe... It turns out to be something that we never expected. Um, the Milky Way galaxy, is an example, we're part of that, and there are some four hundred billion stars in the Milky Way, in our own little galaxy. And there are a couple hundred billion galaxies out there. And I can remember uh, trying to find out if there's anything beyond that, you know, from people who should be in the astronomers and that kind of thing. We know very little about the universe. We can only develop ideas about the universe based on what we can see and what we can measure. Uh, We do not have a very uh, much of an ability to forecast beyond that. So what's beyond the universe that we see is an unknown. I happen to think that uh, because there are a couple hundred billion galaxies, we're part of one galaxy that's got 400 billion stars, that there are probably billions of universes out there also. There have to be. Our trick is going to be able to figure out how to get there. And I, See, I, I, I happen to believe that the whole space program is about survival, that we are genetically driven to go into space because when we can't live on Earth anymore, we've got to go somewhere else. And the, the only, only place we can go is out there. We've got to find a place out there. We've seen that phenomena happen here on the Earth time and time again where native tribes move because a, a natural disaster occurs and they have to go somewhere else. And I think you find that, for instance, all the natives in the South Pacific all came from the same place. But volcanoes kind of pushed them out and went somewhere else. I don't see us as any different than that. I think that we are unconsciously developing the capability to go someplace else to ensure the survival of our species. And, of course, when you think that way, you also can turn it around and say, hmm, maybe that's how we got here.
1: And on that bombshell, <laughs> Apollo 15's Al Warden, who, as you can hear, is as passionate as ever about space exploration. And I really need to thank uh, Vix Southgate for helping me arrange that interview. Uh, we'll play the second part of my conversation with Al next month when he talks about his deep space, spacewalk, and a bumpy return to Earth. Uh, Dallas, you have spent quite a while with Al Warden. <laughs>
4: he's your buddy, isn't he? He is. Right. Uh, you, and you got an interview... He was at your boat launch.
1: He is. You've got right. a, a, interview uh in in your book um with him he's definitely one of the most personable and thoughtful he's, of the Apollo
2: astronauts and yeah. and approachable as well isn't he he's utterly utterly delightful and hilarious he's got an absolutely wicked sense of humor and is just a you know terrific guy just to be around and hang out with and not talk about space and sometimes talk about space he's just you know he's just good fun and you know, um, yeah, and I, which is why he's in my book. I, you know, you can ask him anything and talk about anything. You don't have to sort of censor yourself really when yeah. you talk to Al. You feel you can talk very openly. And he, you know, he's gosh. You, you have to remember, my goodness, he's one of such a unique small group of twenty-four humans who getting in, 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 smaller all the getting time, smaller the all time. the time. You know, of all of the I always say, you know, the hundred and eight billion of people who've ever left, only twenty-four people have actually left the Earth and, and gone anywhere. That's, that's quite a. It's quite a thing. I,
1: like it's quite dismissive in that interview of someone who was in low Earth orbit. <laughs>
2: yeah, well, <laughs> the other thing, he was only in low Earth well, orbit. Yeah. You know? The other thing is what well, I like about Al because he's kind of been around the block. He yeah. can say whatever he wants and yeah. doesn't give a damn. You know, he's he's not sort of I guess doesn't have to worry too much about the sort of PR of it all. He's not a working astronaut. You know, he um, he has got the, that sort of license and freedom to say what he thinks and, and quite rightly, rightly so. Really I like important.
4: the fact that you know the. Command uh, module pilots often get ignored, forgotten, yeah. their names get forgotten, because they don't have the, the perceived glory of walking on the surface. And yet his description of what it was like on his own and being on the far side actually made me think then, do you know what? I almost
2: think he got the best job. I think he did get the best job. Because um, <clears throat> the as others he were said- just
4: seeing... They were seeing the Earth, but he was See seeing everything—the Moon, the moon yeah. and the yeah, Earth. Yeah, yeah,
2: I think his perspective, and actually that that idea of being on your own. There was a wonderful. There's a picture I put in the. Actually, it's not in the book actually, but there was a film. This film by which keeps coming back to my brain. It's by Fritz Lang. It's called Frau oh, Mond, yeah. Woman of yeah. the Moon. Mm. And there's a wonderful sequence of them in their spacecraft. And this is 1922. This was made. Or was it? 1929. 1922, I think. And it's got the, the very first image. Of what, exactly that what astronauts describe as the overview effect, this idea of seeing the Earth from the moon, and there 's a picture of them looking at the Earth, and it cuts to exactly al warden 's view of the surface of the moon with the Earth behind it's, you know it was a drawn thing for the movie, and it is identical to the famous Earthrise picture, um, you know, taken from the, from the command module back then. But I think, but also Al is passionate about science. That is his thing. You know? yeah, that Do-
4: comes across, I absolutely. think, doesn't it? And yeah.
2: particularly, he was absolutely fascinated by lunar, by the geography and the geology. He got very, very involved with that. So like he was saying, for 20 hours a day, he was working and he was, you know, happy as a pig in mm-hmm. doing his thing, you yeah. know, up there. Um, and he, like he said, he had the whole place to himself. You don't have to worry about those other guys annoying him.
1: <laughs> and more on that in the uh, next part which will be in next month's Space Boffins podcast.
4: Well, uh, I'll be channeling my inner Ellie Arroway soon at the very large array radio telescopes. This is the award-winning Space Boffins podcast in partnership with the Naked Scientists. You might not associate grassy
2: banks with the coast.
1: It is a bit like stepping abroad for a second. Well, I'm here on the Ningaloo Reef take
2: people swimming with whale sharks. Just another day at the office. Yeah, just another day at the office, mate.
0: I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. The Naked Scientist podcast takes
4: you to the science topics you need to hear about. Physics. Medicine. Nature. Keep up to date with what's going on in the field. First this week, the announcement from LIGO. And find out the answers to
1: every question you never thought to ask. What kills more people, sharks or selfies?
4: To
0: subscribe, search Naked Scientist podcast or head over to our website.
1: We're easy to find on Facebook, Twitter and now, excitingly, Instagram. I still haven't. I haven't really done <laughs> no, it yet. No. It's kind of on my oh, phone, but I haven't worked it out. Me too. <laughs> How do I do? I have it, but yeah, I do yeah. uh, On our Facebook page right now, you'll find a link to my story on the Soviet space dogs, uh, alluded to at uh, in the opening jingle, the, the remixed opening jingle. Okay. Uh, I, the, I didn't hear a woof. No, there was no woof. I. I Tra- I spent hours, you know, that you get diverted into something. Yeah. I thought, I'll it's get like Soviet space dogs it's in legal. the jingle. <laughs> I spent so long trying to find Soviet space dogs, and I that's love what the Soviet space
2: with. dogs. I'm obsessed by the Soviets. Well, I obviously and, yeah. I, the, you, you know.
4: At the Cosmonauts Exhibition yes. in London a year or so ago, yeah. that was great to see Laika's suit. Yeah, yes. absolutely. Absolutely.
2: <laughs> yeah. No, it's a great, I mean, that's
4: Laika's suit we've seen and Ham's suit. Oh, I saw Ham's suit in uh, New Mexico. Yeah, I think that's something else to say. Oh, I
1: was meant to Almagora. also say, yeah, I was meant to also say there's also piece on the oldest satellite and uh, pictures of a leading European space scientist dressed as a stormtrooper. I know who that is. We can all guess who that is. Uh, yeah
4: I think so. <laughs> Hello Matt. Uh, our guest is Dallas Campbell author of Ad Astra an illustrated guide to leaving the planet. I must say actually I loved the photographs and the illustrations. Thank they're you. sort of either beautiful or they're very practical or they're very
2: Quirky, yeah. Well, I tell you, you when when I was writing the book, I wanted, I didn't want the usual photographs that we've all seen before. You know, it's very easy just to bang in the normal photos that we're all. we're all, you know, expecting to see. Particularly so, as they're rights free, so well, it's dead cheap to put so, the, um, exactly, the NASA pictures. It, exactly. in. Exactly, and it's just an easy thing to do. So, but I wanted every single photo in the book to be to take people by surprise and and make them go wow or who knew or that's interesting or a slightly different perspective. I mean, the whole book is a slightly different perspective. Mm. Um, so, uh, as much work in, went into sourcing those photographs um, as almost well, not quite, but almost almost as writing, and a lot of them. Was, you know, getting in touch with people, spending hours researching, please can we use this picture, you know, begging, borrowing, stealing.
4: What, what so, was weird for me is that one of those pictures in there that up until about eight weeks ago, I had never
2: seen. Only one. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a second. Okay, no, it's more than
4: one. It was the Alan um, Allen B Hazards, this, this ludicrous oh, yeah. lunar exploration oh, that's a great suit. a yeah. It's quite a Which, famous one. When I was at with Wally Funk yeah. recently, yeah. in her sort of lockup, going through some of her possessions, I hasten to add she was with me. I wasn't driving okay. <laughs> through them. Um, she had some really great old copies of Life magazine. That's right. And there was that that's picture it. on the yeah. front. And, and that suit, it, it's like Robbie the Robot, isn't yeah. it? It looks the most uncomfortable space suit You could imagine.
2: There were amazing spacesuit designs, prototype spacesuits design that were built, thinking about how are we going to explore the moon of that there was one of them but there was a there, there's several others i mean i got very into partly the reason i got into the spacesuit history was some of the extraordinary images that that go along with it and i put a chapter about spacesuit history but that's a great one there was one that's a, a similar one that's got a little stool inside that you can actually sort of sit down in the actual suit and that, and it's got that amazing double page
4: spread where you've got i'm assuming it's a russian hanging up a couple of Cosmonaut suits yeah, on a washing line. It's a
2: great. It was. A, it's a beautiful image, and I would actually, actually seen that one before at the Cosmonaut exhibition. And I must have missed that. It was. Uh, they're all training suits, and they were astronauts doing their survival training, and so all the, the, all the circle suits dri- dripping wet were just hung over the line, hanging up. It's just such an arresting, yes, yeah. strange image. So every every picture I wanted, I wanted. To, you, you know, to go wow,
4: and you're right because if you're into space, you have seen yes, a lot. Whereas, got some, actually, yeah. yes, there's a lot in here. Some that, of them that, that yeah. had me. going... It's a challenge ooh, just ooh.
2: to do something different, and I think well, I think you've done that. I mean, I was, we were right up to the wire with a lot of those pictures as well, particularly things like I wanted to a picture of the the Apollo guidance computer the women who who actually stitched together the rope core memory which obviously your listeners I'm sure will know about but there are no photographs there's like one photograph of one of the women doing it and I just researched and researched and researched and eventually I found someone who had a press pack of from um, Raytheon who actually built the actual machines and there was that one photograph in there and I managed to. Get the get his permission to use it in the book. So that that for me is my pride, that's, that's sort of my worth pride it and joy. Alone,
4: quite frankly, I quite like the fact that I can bore people even more now at parties. The fact that fruit flies were the first creatures yes, to leave the they earth. They were. I didn't know that didn't until you? I read it. Really? That. I thought no. you because I you yeah. know
2: all that you guys are going to know everything. Well, actually, there's a f- <laughs> hopefully, there's a few things that no, even the that hardened space box and will loved know. And I love the
4: tardigrade bit, which was sort of on the same in the same section as a space pet, because we watched um, a Star Trek Discovery episode. recently. Recently, yeah. which basically had a massive tardigrade that could uh, yeah, transport- don't, don't, don't give uh,
2: it away to anyone okay. else. I always think, because tardigrades are obviously like a millimetre long, mm. if a tardigrade was the size of a dog, it would be the most revered and feared animal on the planet.
4: Well, it's bigger than but a dog in Star Trek Discovery. Yeah. I'll give you that one, yeah.
2: yeah. I got quite into the animal section, actually. Uh, about it. It's I mean, fascinating, the animals in space. And they're, um, they're, they're kind of the unsung heroes, aren't they? Absolutely. Well, not... Uh, the, the, the the uh, the dogs and the monkeys obviously we we have much been written about but also mice are still going up to the space station you know there's still we still use animals um, for for research obviously hugely controversial it's how we how we push further
4: now last time we interviewed you yeah. you were. We did the podcast from the British Interplanetary Society. Yes. And you were researching yeah, <laughs> well, your book. So it's like, you know, your yeah. baby, it's been born now. Um, so you obviously got a lot of material from there. Where yeah. else did you find the more unusual entries? It's a good question. From?
2: I I mean, the whole point of the book was I wanted to do a real kind of mixtape of, of different stories and cover as wide a ground as I could. I mean, obviously, space buffs are going to know some of these stories. But But not all of them. But not all of them, but also for people who know nothing about space. People's knowledge of space history tends to be confined to Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong and maybe Tim Peake. And that's kind of it. So I I wrote this book for for everyone else. And anyone who's been in the Library of the British Interplanetary Society knows just the the extraordinary wealth of material. So my idea was to take all all those books and condense them somehow into... uh, into one slim volume. But so, I mean, so that was a a big influence. But also, because it's a mixtape, it was what I was interested in at the time. I mean, I had a rough structure. If I was going to write that book again, it'd be completely different stories. Um, But I did want to do, you know, if you were writing a guidebook about leaving Planet, if you're writing a guidebook about going anywhere, there are certain things like, what do you pack? What can you know, the, the history of the place, where to go, all those kinds of stuff? So, I had a rough structure, and then I just kind of went a bit freestyle and, I, and <laughs> well, had, I I, kind of had a good time. Well, can I ask you about because you what I read? This is something I did not know anything
1: much about at all. Um, you talk yeah. about the Jacobean space program and particularly the, the Renaissance right stuff. So, yeah. these ideas around several hundred years ago that weren't
2: far off the mark for me. The interesting thing about this book is not even. The space stuff—it's the human desire to go into space. Like, what, why? How long has this been going on for? Why do we? Why are we so that desire to explore, to to, to go further? And there were various um, uh, books and things written as far, well, even further back than the 1600s, you can go all the way back. Um, um, but there was one particular one, "The Man in the Moon" by Bishop Francis Godwin, which I became obsessed about. I'd seen an art exhibition about it in in London a few years ago. And here was this um, uh, this sort of proto-story, the uh, this uh, proto-astronaut, this young, this man, Domingo Gonzalez, this Spanish traveller, who had this special breed of lunar geese that migrated from the Earth to the Moon, oh, yes, which he caught, and he used this to transport himself to the Moon. And this is the time of Galileo and Copernicus. And al- along his journey, there are these great discussions of the science du jour. And I just fell in love with the story. I fell in love with the imagery, this idea of geese pulling us. Into space and just these early ideas of what we thought space would be like. Johannes Kepler, in Somnium, you know, wrote a wrote a novel all about it, tra- imagining what an astronaut would be like. So I became really fascinated as much with those sorts of stories. How our imagination, which I always say, are, has evolved for space travel in the way that our bodies haven't. Can I just read this uh, this extract from
1: Ke- from Kepler? Yes. The, um, the, who a space traveller should be. I'll just read one sentence from that uh, from the book. Uh, we do not admit desk bound humans into these ranks, nor the fat, nor the foppish. Yes, that's not that's <laughs> not it? Well,
2: one, speak one, for yourself. It, it, <laughs> but it's a really that's it's a really interesting passage, and one of the fascinations. That's pretty I think, much spot on, though, isn't pretty, it? It is. If you carry on, it gets even more fruity. But it's. We, we've been. I think we're fascinated. That, you know, here you are talking talking to Al Warden. We're fascinated about what is it that makes an astronaut? What is it about the right stuff? He's become, definitely not foppish. He's definitely not. <laughs> foppish. But you know, the fact that they were thinking about that all the way back in the in the 1600s is pretty interesting. And then from there, of course, I go from Kepler and, we, and then I go you know into the original but the Mercury pro, Project Mercury when we actually were sending people space. I did space. check
4: one, that you had a Mercury 13 reference. I, I have a same. whole chapter. And you, and, yes, I, th- yes, I think I don't Yes, I, th- yeah, no, yeah, I no, checked I that. That yeah. was one of my... Yeah. Well,
2: actually, it's a good point because... I, because
4: I, I haven't been reading it linearly. Oh, haven't
2: you? No, you must I, read it linearly. Oh, oh, right. There is an arc. Oh, there is an arc. There is an arc. Philistines. But it's a good point. I'll tell you something. You know, I think for a lot of people, space has a pretty blokey whiff. Generally. And so I have populated this book with yes, if you look at the, the pictures, particularly there's a lot about um, women in space and, and not, well, not just women in space, but also people who explore on Earth, uh, you know, space analogs as well. And so there's lots of um, uh, women's stories in there.
1: I wonder if it got it got you down because it gets me down a little bit that that so many people don't get space. I mean, let's play this example. This is presenter Amanda Holden on ITV's breakfast TV show this morning. Uh, it's a very short clip, just interviewing ESA astronaut Tim Peake.
0: When you went to
4: the moon, did you take a piece of the moon and bring it back home with you?
1: So I wasn't Are in you the moon. To? I was in the space station. So you're never- you can watch the whole thing on YouTube It's excruciating, um, Tim Peake handled it very well um very well media trained he was um it's a bit depressing, isn't it that you've got a, well, a you know a mainstream t v presenter that thinks British Easter astronaut Tim Peak went to the
2: moon? I suppose so you know i we all have huge gaps in our knowledge about all kinds of things oh, i mean on. if i was being if I was being interviewed about well, I guess there's no excuse in you that. couldn't do that with sports. You would be laughed at with sport, but she has got away a, with it but with she's space. not. But she's not a science no. presenter. She's, no, she's, she's you a, don't she, have to be a science. If, no.
4: if you're a journalist, I know she's of not course. a journalist, but even if you're a, a presenter with no background, you do your research before you the do. person comes on. But also, I, she must be. She's in her 40s. She's old enough to know that the moon landings <laughs> <laughs> happened and they don't
2: happen uh, anymore. I suppose well, I want ha- to make well, a more general
1: on. point. Is, is there a? Is there a... Almost a
2: snobbishness of not knowing about
1: this stuff. It's a, it's I know, know lots of people
2: who don't who who are, who come up to me and say, "We're well, we not going to the moon anymore," and have just no clue about space history. And I and part of me, you wow. know, bangs my head against the desk. But then, but then, this is a world that we're part of. We I can know, understand but if, that
4: with the young, but not with somebody who's in their forties. It is
2: unusual. Maybe I'm being too nice. It is, it, mm. it is unusual. But I, I don't to be, know. I, just, to I me,
4: uh, what I did like about. How Amanda responded is that she did on Twitter basically <laughs> make complete fun of herself yeah. for being such an idiot, and I warmed to her after that. I did as she well. Just sort of fessed up and said, "Oh my goodness, what have I done?" It was
2: stupid, but also I just, yeah. for me personally, I just didn't. I don't like the backlash. I don't, you know, if I say no, something yeah. stupid, we yeah. we all, we all we say, say something stu- stupid. And it's yeah. like this 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 idea that you you know we all don't know, I don't know whole, the the, 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 sheer scale of what I don't know is so vast.
4: But like you say though, it does reflect, and you're right, that there are are people who uh, don't realise, and I think particularly in Britain, say, it wasn't until Tim Peake became a European astronaut that people had had never heard of Helen Sharman, for instance, the first British astronaut. So it it does sometimes take a little jolt and a little something else, Probably that little faux pas of hers, yeah, um, reawakens some people to oh, I, oh, actually, haven't they gone to the moon? So yeah, yeah it's know.
2: pretty. It is unusual the, the
4: fact
1: that he just, was on
2: the show and and she mm. didn't do any. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, it, yeah, so,
1: so yes, that's more. You know we've read right. your book. Yes. <laughs> you have read my book. You've got yeah. post-it notes I've in it, got it and everything. I've not read all of it. I Haven't was you?
2: To
4: that. Well, you know that because I've, uh, I've only seen the bits of uh, Mercury. Have I've you just only been read
2: going, bit a, I was a bit, bit of it? Dipping,
4: oh, I've been dipping in and out of it, and that's, and that's what I've liked because it felt like a dipping in and out book. But so I've see, not gone uh, from,
2: from start to finish. It, it, I wanted to write so it felt like a dipping in and out book, but actually <laughs> there's, there's secrets in it. I
4: could have been on the cover.
2: There are secrets in <laughs> There are secrets there waiting to be discovered. I don't,
4: don't worry, I will. You'll,
2: you'll, 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 yeah. it's, you can read it in any order you want. It's oh, thank fine. thank you, thank you. I mean, it's, there's a slight kind of chronological order. It's pretty light. I jump around the, a bit. That's also on the cover. <laughs> I jump around a bit.
4: Now, it's hard to believe, but the movie Contact is 20 years old this year. Now, if you've not seen it, do so immediately because it's brilliant. And uh, if you have, then you'll know that Jodie Foster plays Dr. Ellie Araway, an astronomer who finds conclusive proof of contact from an alien race in the star system Vega. Now, some of the film's most memorable scenes for me take place at the Very Large Array in New Mexico. It's an array of multiple white dished radio telescopes. They were built in the 1970s. And it was where Jodie Foster with headphones beneath an enormous antenna radio telescope, with others sort of stretching out into the background. In fact, I tried to replicate did you that sit in the photo. With I, the, I did. Uh, well, I didn't have a bonnet, but I did <laughs> put the headphones to my thing. I, I then discovered that virtually every other geek who's done, you know, has done exactly the same. And as luck would have it, I was actually able to visit uh, the facility recently during the movie's anniversary year. Well, I'm walking up to one of the huge radio telescopes that make up the very large array, and I am so lucky because one of them is moving, and it's making a strange sound. It almost sounds like it's calling E.T. I can see a cylinder rotating at the very, very top. And every so often you hear that it goes do 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 do. Honestly, I'm not making that up. This is amazing to be this close and to see one of them moving. The others I can see around me. They're in a sort of Y shape, and the, their configuration changes every four months. So, uh, but they're pretty far spread apart. They go right into the distance towards the mountains on one side and towards the mountains on another and they're, they're moved on a, a rail track which explains probably why there's a, a rail carriage just over there beyond the scrub the signs say keep to the walking tour and uh, you definitely don't want to uh, stray too far because next to that sign it uh, asks you to beware of snakes so I'm definitely keeping to the path Now you'll find the astronomers about fifty miles away from that array at Socorro in the National Radio Astronomy Observatory. And uh, while there, I met Dr. Rick Purley, who led the upgrade project that has kept the VLA at the top of its game, as it's now called the Carl G. Gansky VLA. Naturally, my first question was, who is Carl G. Gansky?
0: Carl G. Jansky was an electrical engineer. Worked for Bell Telephone Laboratories, and he is often regarded as the father of radio astronomy. Uh, he's not an astronomer, but he had constructed equipment, I think, in the 1920s, which uh, was being used for to research where static was coming from. It was a big issue at that time, trying to for long distance telecommunications, and uh, he constructed a, by today's standards, a fairly primitive antenna with some directional capability to try and understand where all this noise was coming from. And um, he noticed, quite brilliantly actually, that every day the cosmic static changed its origin by about four minutes, which is the, uh, uh, corresponds to how much the uh, sun moves with respect to the background sky. And he figured out, he deduced from this, that this noise was coming from outside the Earth. It was in fact the galactic plane. And uh, from there, uh, people began to realize that all this noise and static wasn't just from uh, the Earth and the Earth's atmosphere, but it actually had a, a cosmic origin. Uh, from this, uh, others, uh, he and others, built more and better equipment, and this all sort of moved in the direction of, uh, of what we have today.
4: Now, for, for those of us who have never physically been to see the, the VLA, mm-hmm. It's a number of, of, of different telescopes. What are the actual numbers and figures that actually describe uh, the array that you have at this moment?
0: So we have 28 antennas, each of them 25 meters in diameter, and these are uh, deployed along railroad tracks uh, out to a maximum diameter of 35 kilometers. Uh, the antennas are, are, are all independent in the sense they, they can point independently, but almost always they point at the same object. Their signals are collected, amplified, transported to the central station where there is a thing called a correlator. The correlator is, you can think of it simply as a simple multiplier, multiplies the voltages together. This product is the fundamental piece of information that we need to make an image.
4: And you're getting radio waves from different sources around our universe from, mm-hmm. from galaxies.
0: Yes, uh, the antennas themselves have some what we call directional capability because they are a single aperture. So for example, at 20 centimeters wavelength, each antenna has about a, collects radiation from a size about equal to the diameter of the moon. We make maps typically of pieces of sky about the diameter of the moon.
4: Now, as you're probably aware, uh, 2017 is the 20th anniversary of the movie Contact, which uh, was based on a book written written by Carl Sagan. Yes. And um, that gave a a huge prominence to the VLA, didn't it? Uh,
0: Yes. Uh, I actually remember when the filming was done because all the staff were told that we were not supposed to go to the site unless we had business up there. Uh, so most of us don't go out there all that often anymore. Back in ancient times... Oh, you
4: mean you don't sit there like Jodie Foster n- with a no, hat I'm on? No, and... I'm
0: afraid that oh, that may I'm be popular, a popular <laughs> misconception here. Uh, we actually uh, sit at our desks rather uh, uh, sedately sometimes. Uh, data comes from the array, and uh, we do a lot, an awful lot of computer processing in order to get the images for the scientific staff, however, there is no, um, sad, I mean, and I'm sad to say this, there is no compelling reason to actually be at the site uh, since the data that comes in is basically voltages and the correlator makes products. And there is uh, a quite a, lot, a fair amount of effort involved in turning those quantities into the images that we make, and this can be done anywhere.
4: It's interesting that you say it's slightly sad because I do wonder, a film like that,
0: And Mm -hmm. the book
4: probably inspired a generation of people to become radio astronomers. And uh, it almost (laughs) feels like you're saying, I'm so sorry, it's not quite as glamorous as that.
0: Oh, God, I guess I'm just jaded now. (laughs) But things are a little bit different.
4: Now, the film was about um, the use of the VLA by SETI, Mm -hmm. Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. Yes. Um, Does SETI still use the VLA?
0: A little bit. But I am actually uncertain how much it certainly is not very much. I, I'll also point out to be for fairness though, we need to point out that the VLA was not designed to do this kind of work. It was built to detect and image distant radio sources.
4: Before we finish, finally, <clears> I just want to ask you, what did you think of the film?
0: I haven't seen it. <laughs>
4: no <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> You've read the book though I bet. I haven't
0: done that either. Oh my <laughs>
4: goodness oh that is so funny, I, is um, so funny. I, well, I You've I, got I, to do that I have then. no
0: defence for this
4: <laughs> Rick Purley from the very large array. I did not expect those uh, that answer, and a huge thanks to him and to Dave Finley for letting me come and see him at such short notice because um, I was in New Mexico in September um, to see the spaceport with oh. Wally and um, the VLA wasn't even on my radar. I was so concentrated on, on the space part. So it, that, they just did it literally with, you know, 24 hours notice and I'm so glad I went.
2: Did you see any crashed flying saucers?
4: You no, there, it? new, It's the uh, home of the crashed although flying Although um, the White Sands missile uh, it's right there. Range. There is um, something that really does look like a flying saucer. <laughs> yeah. I kid you not. Uh, I think I put I uh, posted one of those photos up on Facebook. It's it's so. Uh, I'd love to go back to New Mexico because I didn't even get to go to Roswell. But well, I, I have a bonus so ch-
2: a bonus chapter: How to get abducted by aliens. I saw yeah, that just, yeah. just in case. It's that one of in was my, case, one of the ones <laughs> I. <said>. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of my post-its. In fact. <laughs> have you? Oh, okay. yeah, it's one of my post-its. All but right, we'll sadly, get on to that. sadly, we've run out of time. You're kidding? No, no. really, we haven't even started. Yet. <laughs> Who are these other people? you've been talking to <laughs> you'll have to come back on I will yeah, sorry that pulled so Yeah, that,
1: <laughs> wasn't a, that wasn't like a dramatic. <laughs> that yeah. was like a no comment, wasn't no, 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 it? Yeah. yeah, sure.
2: I will. Yeah. <laughs> I got no, 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 I got lots of things I want to te- <laughs> tell. Things I want to catch up you. soon.
1: Yeah
2: yeah, 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 yeah.
1: I know. I'll call you. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> can I just ask? you yeah. my favourite geekiest page in your book. What, um, which one is it? Page ninety nine. Classic. <laughs> yeah, classic. Classic. So it's the Apollo instrument control panel oh, diagram. Yes. Uh, yeah. You've got ten seconds to find the SCE to ORC switch on the command module instrument panel before this. Book self destructs. Just very quickly, what's this referred to?
2: Sce to orc. So it was Apollo Twelve, which launched during a storm, and as it launched, the uh, Saturn Five got hit by lightning, and all the electrics went, just, and nobody knew what to do. And uh, the hand would have been on the the abort handle. Do we pull it? Do we you know launch the um, escape tower, taking the astronauts to safety, and just blow the Saturn V over the Atlantic? And the econ, the guy in mission control, John Aaron, his name was, who was in charge of all the electrics, just so happened to be one of these people who just took an interest in things. And he'd seen all these kind of crazy numbers coming up on the screen. Nobody knew what was going on. Should they abort? And he very quietly said, Try SCE to orcs. <laughs> and everyone you know, on the Alan Bean was like, What? What's FCE? And they are like, No, SCE to orcs. And this was some obscure switch that nobody had, you know, all the astronauts, no one knew the astronauts what it was. And, and no one had even re- remembered what it was. But he knew. Because John Aaron took an interest in all the controls of the Saturn V and knew everything, he took this holistic approach to his job. And it's a little switch behind Alan Bean's head, and they flick the switch, and suddenly everything came back online. And it was one of those kind of great moments. Of we always think of the astronauts, those three guys, as the sort of heroes of Apollo, but beneath them is this world of incredible other people who um, who uh, saved the day on that on that occasion.
4: Well, you can read yeah. that and more in *Ad Astra*, an illustrated. Gla- Glide, Glide. an it. yeah, it's got gliding guide to leaving the planet. Uh, it's out in harbat now, sixteen ninety nine in English pounds. Cheaper um, on Amazon, I think. Uh, sometimes everything depending is on the algorithm, including the uh, salaries. Uh, perfect <laughs> Christmas stocking gift, there. In fact, uh, we've got a copy, a yeah, signed we, copy. We'll that... give
1: this away. So, what we want is uh, a question. So, why? What, what are we going to go for? Why you'd like to leave the planet? Well, this is
2: it. So, the book is it's more of a it's a self help book. It should be in a self. help <laughs> help section is like if you want to leave earth here's how to do it so my yeah the question is why do you want to leave the planet and the funniest will win and we'll give it a week from this podcast there normally yeah. goes <laughs> out on the 10th Tenth. <laughs> ten, on,
1: that's ten, what I'm normally trying to
4: say. around the 10th so around should we give it to ish. the 20th give it ish. to the 20th 20th yeah. funniest of november
1: keep it short
2: yeah. keep it pithy keep it funny
1: and we will send keep you keep it
4: clean and I think, <laughs> clean-ish.
1: Okay. I think we can send this to anywhere in the world but not to the moon
2: yeah what? Uh, well is there's, there's an audio copy you could send to the moon presumably okay, could, like beam yeah, it fine but no, you want the, you know you want the proper hardback want the pro- copy we'll
1: get that to you anywhere yeah. in the world Space Boffins is a Boffin Media production in partnership with the Naked Scientists, and uh, we're supported by the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium. Who also supply our coffee mugs, and they've just done a new one to commemorate Leica. We'll put a picture of that up on our Facebook page. I want a coffee mug. We should have brought. We will next time we meet you. I almost thought about bringing it when I left the house, but I thought it would break by the time I I brought it to you. I'll send. Look, post is no problem. We're going to send the book anywhere in the world. I will send you a coffee mug. It was Leica's 60th a couple of days ago. Exactly. Well, that's why I did it in the jingle. Oh, I see. Sorry, I didn't Look, know. The, it. Sorry, the, I missed that. production. <laughs> Sorry. All right,
4: now, 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 now. Okay. Next month, we'll have part two of our Al Warden interview, including his return to Earth. And we'll be looking back on the last 12 months in space. Until then, fights are over. Thanks for listening. Coming up, Richard will be talking to the first man to spacewalk below low-Earth orbit, Apollo 15 Command Module pilot Al Warden, and I'll be crunching gravel in New Mexico beneath one of the huge radio telescopes famously up seen...
1: oh, You'd said below as well, below low-Earth orbit, beyond.
4: Beyond, sorry. Beyond. I'll put my glasses on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sorry. I'll start that's to that's get... just walking on the ground. Yeah. <laughs> yes! Oh, God, that
2: is
3: embarrassing, isn't it? I'll put my glasses
2: on. OK, let's go again.